in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, then talk about them. Joining me today is my co-host, Chad Robinson. Chad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great this wonderful day. And I am your other host, Russell Guest, and I'm very tired because I have a newborn and the release schedule on this has become all wacky, so I hope you've subscribed to the show because we're not just going to be coming at you every Monday anymore. We're going to try our best to stay on top of things as much as we can, but Chad, I hear that kids are a lot of work. Is this true? Nah, not at all. I recommend having six. Okay. Okay, six it is. And joining us today, you know what? I like people who have so much fun, they come back and do this again. So if you were a fan of the 2001 episode, uh, a Space Odyssey episode, joining us today is Nathan Lutz, familiar voice from that. Nathan, how are you? Great. Thanks, Russell and Chad. Good to be back. Well, we're happy to have you back, but we got to grill you again because, you know, people need to get a better feel for who you are. Some icebreakers. Of course. So what was the last movie you saw? Oh, the last separate movie I saw was probably Endgame. Okay. Okay. And did it go well for you? Yes, it ended fantastically for me. I don't, it's not the end, though. There'll, there'll be more. Actually, you know what? I'm correcting myself already, because I did then go see Spider-Man. Okay. It indeed did continue and will continue into the future with many, many possibilities opened by both movies. Anytime a movie makes that much money, <laughs> there will be more. It, 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 these are the rules. Even if James Cameron has to make take, uh, I guess, a decade to uh, get back, get around to making a sequel, there will be more when any time a movie makes. I mean, the the danger is if, like James Cameron, you decide to make six sequels and then instead of starting with the easy bits and producing them while planning the big bits, you try to do them all at once. It just gets forgotten for ten years until finally it comes back and everyone goes, "Oh wait, what was that movie Avatar? That's right, it." It did make that much money. Oh my gosh, it made that much money. <laughs> it was a big deal. I don't even remember how it was so big, but it was it was quite the event. Yeah. Counterpoint, there will be no Titanic 2. Okay. <laughs> there was, wasn't there, of some sort? No, th- those were sequels to the animated versions, right? There was definitely a spoof movie that had on the marquee, like, coming soon, Titanic 2, but I don't remember if this was, like, scary movie, not another teen movie or something like that. Like, that, that joke has definitely emerged in something, so, um, yeah. I don't know what the colon is on that, like, Titanic 2, rising. <laughs> I don't know. Titanic 2, keeping it down there. It's a zombie movie. Hope floats. Uh, so, as an architect, which you are, and we work together, I know this. I know both of these things. And as a fan of movies, what house is the creepiest you've seen in a movie? So, you know, this is actually fairly recent, but the house from It, the recent remake, is just... Pretty appalling looking, but it's great. So as a client, you would not want to, sorry, as an architect, you would not want Pennywise the clown to be your client. That would be preferable, although maybe he's really fun to work with and you could literally pass off anything and he would accept it. In fact, he would be happier with the worse it gets. So, you know, almost all profit. Yeah, I mean, you have to do code research to make 
new code violations. Like yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So the murder room. Uh, so what is your go-to movie theater snack when you go to the theater? So on the subject of architecture, which I'm not a fan of, the Waterfront Theater in Pittsburgh. Not a fan of the architecture, but but their pretzel bites with the cinnamon spread are awesome. Pretzel bites, okay. I don't think I've asked this one to you, Chad. What's your go-to snack? Oh, it's got to be movie theater butter. Just just, uh, just butter? No, In no a bottle? Butter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The popcorn's the bonus, but it, the butter's the crack. There you go. Shake hands with this man afterwards, and then you'll have a you'll have a residue. <laughs> so, what is uh, what TV show would you most want to see go for the big screen? Well, since we're doing a game movie tonight, what I really think that I want to be bringing up is not a TV show, but a video game on the subject of. Please, where is the Zelda movie? I've been waiting for this for many years, and it's not here. Please give it to me. Yeah, Nintendo's not monetizing. That would be super awkward. Link wouldn't talk for two hours. Maybe that would be a hilarious running joke, or maybe that would be like <laughs> the brilliant, you know, subtext thing of the movie where everyone interprets it differently. I think he would talk. I just think he would. Oh, no. We did that once and never again. Did we? Yes, yes. The CDI game. Oh, you mean the game. Okay. No, I meant the movie. He'd, he'd have to talk. I mean, the guy would have lots of lines, let's be honest. They're just all the same line. Ha! Ha! Yeah! I do want to see, like, a Daniel Day-Lewis as Ganondorf. Yes. So, what movie are we going to do today, Nathan? Today, we are doing the 1985 Clue, a cult classic, which its box office is lower than its actual budget, but has come to be a very appreciated movie since its release. That's right. The budget and the grossings aren't way off. So it is it is a loss. The budget's $15 million. They grossed $14.6 million in the, in the box office domestic. So any international returns or TV, movies, and rental, I promise you it made profit in the long run. Because this movie has oh, been put into heavy no rotation question. on TV. It places at 57th on the box office that year, so you could certainly do worse. It's not an amazing smash it, but it is definitely what you would call a cult classic. Movies that place ahead of it is Baby, colon, Secret of the Lost Legend. Movie that placed behind it is Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. These movies are not jogging anything for me. How about you, Chad? I got nothing on those. Nothing. And uh, the number one movie that year, I bet we'll all have heard of, and that's Back to the Future. I hear that one's pretty good. Meh. No, I'm just kidding. Don't write into the show. I love it. Okay. (laughs) Since I have control of the edit today, I'm going to just leave you with the meh. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> that that was my wife's reaction to it. It was very disappointing. Oh, no. really? I showed it to her. She'd never seen it. And at the end, I was excited. The clock tower scene. I'm like, this is one of the greatest cinematic moments in history. And I look over and she just goes, eh. <laughs> mm. crushing. Yes. As crushing as it was when I uh, when we were talking to Empress New Groove and that, that's got the same response from both her and you a couple weeks ago. So IMDb gives Clue a 7.3. And Rotten Tomatoes, the critics really did not like this movie. They gave it a low 59%, and the audience likes it a good bit more at 86 So here we are at our 50th episode. I can't believe it. We hit it. This is a bit of a mini milestone. With that, though, Nathan, have you seen Clue before? If so, what was it like? I have. It was back in high school when some of my friends finally brought me into the fold on this movie, when there's this 
gaping chasm of movies from the late 80s and early 90s that I just haven't seen. And this uh, apparently was on the very early end of that. But once I saw it, it was it was just like, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> and uh, had you seen it since then? I've watched it a couple of times. It's one of these movies that is just very fun to have on. And it's not the kind of thing that you have to sit quietly to and concentrate and think deeply about issues, even though there are obviously undertones and subtext that one can read into if one wants on this movie. Yeah, and so it's holding up pretty well for you, though? It does. And Chad, how about you? Had you seen this movie before? No. No, I had never seen Clue, so this was a new movie for me, and it was it was great to see something new. Wow, uh, so I'm surprised uh, Comedy Central didn't beat you over the head with this one in the late 90s, early 2000s. How did you miss it? This is not one I can recall seeing on TV or advertised or anything, so I was surprised it was a cult classic. I can see it now, but yeah, I, I had no information about this movie until now. Well, this is extra fun then. So what was your takeaway being that it was your first time with it? Oh, I really enjoyed it. It's definitely one I want to show to friends and family members. And I think people will have a good time with it. I had no expectations. If anything, they were extremely low. Uh, just considering the source material. I like the board game, but yeah, that doesn't always translate. You mean Battleship the movie wasn't good? Yeah, we talked about that before you got on here. Uh, I have not seen it, but uh, from what Nathan told me, no. No, it does not sound good. This is a movie that takes a lot of liberties with the source material. So is Battleship, but one of them is at least relatively faithful to the idea of the source material. The other one, I don't know where that went in the writer's room, but it was a very, very strange beast. Well, for me, I have seen this one, and I had seen this one several times uh, throughout the years. It's one that I just, TV has a way of reintroducing it to me. As I mentioned, it's just on TV all the time. And so I originally saw this, though. Uh, my mom rented it for me because Christopher Lloyd was in it. And I had probably just gotten through Back to the Future. So I'm probably around, like, fifth grade or something like that when I really fell in love with those movies and went through all of those. And I thought Christopher Lloyd was the man. And I was right about that. And so, what other movie came out in 1985 with Christopher Lloyd? Uh, well, Clue also came out. Uh, and so, I enjoyed it then, and it plays well to a younger audience. It's actually got a PG rating. Yeah, And so, exactly. I am surprised, if anything, that with a PG rating, that it still makes me smile as much as it does. I don't think there are belly laughs in this movie, but... That's okay. It's just flat out fun. And if anything that the game is, it's fun. So maybe this captures the spirit of it for me. And so I now own this movie. I'm happy about it. It's on my top 200, not 100, but top 200 comedies list. And I have enjoyed this one every step of the way. And I continue to enjoy it more and more over time. I do want to let the listeners know, though, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So after this break, we will be back and there will be spoilers. Good morning, dedicated listener. The Retro Movie Roundtable needs your help gathering feedback, promoting the show, and growing their community of movie-loving fans such as yourself. This classified information is so important, we're only calling on our most skilled officers and agents to handle the case. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and leave a rating and review. Then proceed to like Retro Movie Roundtable on Facebook. If at any point in your mission, you need to contact us at base, you may also make correspondence via email at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Should you or any of your friends be caught, killed, or exposed, the Retro Movie Roundtable will disavow any knowledge of your actions. 
The cassette tape inside your listening device will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, listener. So we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you don't want to know what happens in the movie Clue, turn this off. Go go watch the movie. Come back and enjoy the rest of this podcast. So, Nathan, why don't you refresh people who haven't seen Clue since 1985, or maybe only went to the theaters to see it once. And don't even know how it really ends. Right, yeah, I'm gonna, that, that's a tease for later, but uh, go on. Spoiling my own spoilers. One dark and stormy night in the 50s, six strangers arrive at a proud hilltop mountain. They meet a butler who assigns them curious names. Mrs. Peacock, Professor Plum, Mrs. White, Mr. Green, Miss Scarlet, and Colonel Mustard. Each of them has a secret they will do anything to protect, a secret that the man said to be their host has been blackmailing them with. But nothing is as it seems. The servants in the house are strangely familiar to some, and their host is yet to arrive, and Wadsworth, the humble butler, seems to know more than he lets on. When the slippery Mr. Body arrives, bearing with him a heavy crocodile-skin case, he sits back as Wadsworth exposes the guest's accused misdeeds, sneers when the guests are told he is the blackmailer, and when the butler urges them all to reveal Mr. Body to the police, he proposes a simple alternative— kill the butler, and keep their secrets. From his case, he gives each guest a weapon, a heavy gold candlestick, rope in a noose, a massive wrench, a delicate knife, a lead pipe, and a loaded revolver. Before they have a moment to consider, he turns off the lights. From total darkness emerge a gasp, a scuffle, a gunshot. When Miss Peacock finally gets the lights on, the revolver lies on the floor, there is a bullet hole in the wall, and Mr. Body lies apparently dead on the floor. Every guest protests their innocence, but with the police already called, they must work quickly to identify which of them it was who killed Mr. Body. In the chaos which follows, the cook is found dead by the knife. Mr. Body turns out to be alive, only to be found later clubbed over the head with the candlestick. A driver with a broken-down car asks to use the phone, only to be killed with a lead pipe. A passing police officer sees the car and inspects the mansion while Mr. Wadsworth and the guests hide the bodies. Later, he falls victim to the wrench. Moments later, the maid Yvette is strangled with the rope, and a singing telegram girl is shot with the revolver. When Wadsworth and the guests reconvene, the energetic butler declares he knows who did it and how. With great enthusiasm, he reenacts the events of the night, concluding that, well, it depends on the ending. In theaters, the movie would air with one of three endings. In modern releases, the three endings play back to back. They reveal that the servants and visitors were all informants for Mr. Body, but implicate different suspects. In the first, he names Miss Scarlet as the murderer, fooling her into thinking the revolver empty so that the FBI can catch her. Second, he names Mrs. Peacock, who is also caught by the FBI after being tricked to walk out of the house. Third, he implicates them all, excluding Mr. Green, who suddenly shoots the butler and reveals himself as an FBI plant. The film ends with the FBI arresting all the other guests. Very thorough, very thorough, and full of twists and turns. One of the things that made Clue really unique, as you mentioned, was when people went to the theaters, they only got one ending. And I think this is a large part of why the critics backhanded this movie and hated it. Uh, The intent was so that you would go to the theater three times to see the end, and you would still sit through the same start. And I think that that in itself was viewed as a gimmick. And I don't think you're seeing theater gimmicks. My mind goes to Vincent Price 
And uh, he had a movie called The Tingler, which I've seen and, you know, it doesn't play as well today, but a part of the movie was that it had like vibrating seats that would actually make you feel like this thing was coming after you. And so this is an awfully late in that to see this gimmick pushed on people. But one of the things that's magical about it is when you put it on VHS, it's actually really fun when you get all three back to back. One thing that I do wonder is because I've never had the experience of seeing the movie with just one ending, what is the feeling of that first ending concluding and then the credits rolling because each ending has different jokes which are just great and the last ending has a lot of really good jokes and so when you see them back to back it feels like a logical crescendo as if this were the intended way that it was always supposed to be and again it makes perfect sense given the game clue so I, I really think that the theater gimmick idea was something of a mistake yeah, and like I said, the the critics did not reward them at all for that attempt. Right. Chad, what do you make of this uh, multiple endings as well as multiple releases in theaters? I actually would have been okay with two of the three endings. I think the Miss Scarlet one makes a whole lot of sense, and it's fun. We'll call that we'll call that ending A. Yeah, they even set up the corny "Gone with the Wind" joke whenever she gets arrested. You know the. <laughs> Frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn. It's like uh, yep. a little eye rolling, but it fits with the movie and the the Wadsworth guilt. Uh, that ending with Mr. Green giving the line, "If you want to know who killed Mr. Body, it was me in the hall with the revolver." Like that's great. That encapsulates Clue. The one that didn't work for me was Miss Peacock. There was nothing that really made sense of that, and maybe it was because I saw fake out ending number one, but. I think if I had gotten that as my true ending, I would have left pretty upset. You're not a fan of the, uh, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. I just like, I, I did like the whole, we're not going to do anything. Let's all just leave and pretend that nothing happened. And the J. Edgar Hoover joke was great. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's the thing. There's a couple of jokes in this movie, which maybe it's not a belly laugh, but it's really fun to just think about. And it just makes you smile. I have to protest that comment from Russell earlier, though. I'm not someone like... Go to a movie with Brian Fry if you want to have a good time. One of our co-hosts, he laughs and it's infectious and it's great. I'm not one of those people. I laugh internally a lot of the times. I'm like going with Drax from (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy. But there was a scene with the cop talking to Wadsworth and it just had me laughing out loud. I loved it when he's talking about everything I've seen here is legal. And Wadsworth is like, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) That just, uh, this is one of the rare... (laughs) I didn't know it was that This is one of the rare movies that has made me laugh out loud, so it worked for me. Okay, and so to me... And the, the, so that is fair. It is it is a, it is primarily a comedy. A mystery is very much secondary. Yes, yes. And I think for me, what it does is when I said it doesn't make me badly laugh. I'm not saying it's not funny. I just have a really fun time with it. And in a way, I have a really fun time with the game. And this movie captures the spirit of the game, if that's a fair yeah. thing to say. Oh, yeah. And I like the multiple endings. So 
I actually am kind of sad if it didn't make more money because I could have gone for another round of this where it has <laughs> different events on the night. It has the same set of characters. You bring everybody back in, but you do everything differently because that's how the game goes. You go to the same yeah, rooms, yeah. but it com- something completely different happens. And so maybe that's a Netflix show idea. They they pick up everything. So Each each episode, a different one of them does it. Actually, I would watch that. The Murderous Clue Society. It's Murder, She Wrote, but funny. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's a movie that... The multiple endings to me go together better, though, to make it a better whole. Like I said, I saw this on VHS from the rental store or TV, and I can't even imagine only getting one. It would be a very short movie for one if you did. Yeah. Now, of course, some of the elements from those endings almost certainly overlap with one another, so it wouldn't just end. But watching those back to back make it better. Yeah. It's the rule of repetition. You know, when he delivers the line of like, "Well, not a popular dish uh, in, in Cantonese cuisine, <laughs> monkey brains is not a common dish here in America." I'm butchering that slightly. But then you might go, "Hmm, that's delivered with zeal from uh, Tim Curry. Good job, Tim Curry." But but then he delivers it exactly again yes. in, in a, in a yes. different room and in a different tense moment, and somehow that just. That simple line being said again, it's such a specific, wildly specific it, line. It, it does help that line. I, I do think that they cut out exactly the right amount. <laughs> for playing those back to back because you can tell they're you know they're fading in the musical cue because they didn't have a soundtrack which was designed to run all three endings back to back the soundtrack was clearly written with the intent of having just one ending so once the third ending starts you you hear this funny fade in it's like yep this was not intended but it's great yeah. <laughs> well they had a fourth ending which i'm mentioning and russell will probably throw a shoe at me because it's one of his look for this or whatever but uh, uh yeah there was a fourth ending that they wound up cutting well you can go ahead i have the floor man just uh, you, you bring it up i mean wh- yeah did this, movie, did, did this movie need a fourth ending no no see my wayne's world commentary don't overdo it well wayne's world if you'll recall has three different endings and i remember you said it was overdone and you know as john murray wisely pointed out this is the comedy rule of three Three is a magical number for for laughs, and so uh, three felt just right here. I mean, while I just said I would watch a whole sequel, I would want different events to lead me up to that. Yes. So this is the right amount of zaniness and crisscrossing, and also the more endings you put in it, the more you have to plant along the way because... Uh, it's, this movie's actually very methodical. Like, when they say Mrs. Peacock's not standing there and you go back and watch it a second time, she's not standing there. This movie really takes advantage of creating so many Chekhov's guns in a movie that at the end of it, you can turn around and pick on any of the, any one of them and it seems like everything fits together. But there are enough puzzle pieces that you can kind of do whatever you want with it. So, Chad, you alluded to it. B is your least favorite, but between... A, which is the Miss Scarlet is the culprit, or C, everybody kills somebody, and particularly uh, Mr. Body was Wadsworth the whole time. Uh, which of these is your favorite? I think I like C just because it has it's so dense with the comedy. Uh, Wadsworth saying, so I choose to expose myself. And <laughs> Colonel Mustard is like, please, there are ladies <laughs> present. Just calmly. And, uh, you know, how disappointed Professor Plum is that he killed the butler and not actual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and even Mr. Green. And flames, flames on the side of my face and and yeah, yeah and that was improvised, <laughs> so good for her. But uh, yeah, the Mr. Green declaring, no, I'm a plant. And Miss Scarlet saying, a plant? I thought men like you were usually called a fruit because he confesses to being gay earlier. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Even yeah. stuff with that. And that the 
the the clue line, the, you know, where he Mr. Green establishes who killed Mr. Body, where, and with what <laughs> weapon. Like that was great. So Nathan, we have three endings as we mentioned. Can you rank them for you, like in level your enjoyment? You know, I agree. I think it's three is the best. Has all the great humor in it. Um, two is the least interesting. Um, unfortunately, Mrs. Peacock is just not that interesting to me. If I were ranking the cast, she might be close to close to the bottom of having sense of presence and really filling the character. She has great lines and everything, but I think that her turning out to be the one isn't quite as interesting, though her accent change is wonderful. More than that, more on that later. But I'll, I'll hold back for now. And yeah. uh, so your favorite, your favorite though is Wadsworth. But, but yes, masterminding everything. Yes. Okay. And you know, you guys had nailed my ranking, so I, I as well prefer C than A than B. And just to piggyback on what you're saying, B, I like Miss Peacock though. For the record, uh, I did like her. But why I like C is it's extremely complicated, and A's A's moderately complicated. It's clever. Yeah. yeah. And uh, B is just pretty much straightforward. We have one killer. She's behind the whole thing. There's not another turn on this, whereas uh, the C has another turn, and then another turn, and another turn, and somehow that just lends itself to this kind of humor. Well, what yeah. happens next is, yeah. is very much a big part of this the brand of humor. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of these things where, because all the characters are so surprised in, in the third ending, you're enjoying them reacting to, oh my gosh, they figured out it was me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is uh, I don't I, don't, I try not to bring uh, other critics into it too often, but I mean, I noticed Ebert praised the A ending and saying the other two weren't very good. Oh, I did like the A ending, but C is the best, as we've all voted. Quite possibly, Ebert would have looked at it as A is the methodical mystery ending where everything feels like that's exactly how it was supposed to be put together. It feels like a regular mystery. It feels, yeah, it feels like the correct conclusion to the mystery. There's a more established motive. Yeah. And there's a, there's a little bit more of a, the plot unfolds to a more rewarding conclusion, whereas Mr. Body gets shot and Cian's kind of all over. And I think also by that point, he probably went to three showings of it and he's probably a little sour of it by the end. And I think there's just a, I don't know that he, I I think when you're Ebert, you have to sit through how many movies? I mean, and you don't want to sit through the same (laughs) movie three times. And so by the third time, I think he's just sour grapes. I'm, I'm also imagining these theaters not telling you which ending is in which which screening and someone walking in they and did i'm i'm sure they did but but it would be quite hilarious darn it i wanted that third ending i guess i'll have to go see it a fourth time oh that you're describing like the uh, gumball machine like or like not, not gumball machines but like the vending machines that has collectibles so yeah like, yeah like if you want to get all five power rangers or all, <laughs> or all 30 football helmets or whatever and you put a quarter in and you turn it and how many quarters are you yes, gonna put yes. in before the law of averages the, works the, out this would be the ea video gaming approach to the clue endings <laughs> absolutely i i do a appreciate Professor Plum's nonchalance when uh, Scarlet is just, I'll sell everyone's secrets. How do you think your reputations will suffer if you're <laughs> implicated in murder? And he's like, mm, my reputation might go up in the UN if they knew I was implicated in murder. Yep, yep. Like, he's just so casual about all of this. Like, oh, shucks, I killed the wrong guy. They're just going to cover up the mystery of, of, <laughs> of six murders? Yes. 
They do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think, do you think yeah. it's just run by a guy called Hoover? Uh, this is good stuff. Chad, we've gone pretty far into this. Why don't you give us a cast rundown? Sure thing. First up, we have Eileen Brennan. She is the chatty Mrs. Peacock. You might recognize her as Zandra on Will and Grace, or she was the cat lady in Jeepers Creepers. That one stuck out to me. Tim Curry, he's the goofy butler, Wadsworth. He's also Dr. Frankenfooter from Rocky Horror Picture. There's Madeline Kahn, who is the seductive Mrs. White. She's also one of my favorite roles, Lily Von Strupp in Blazing Saddles, and she's Elizabeth in Young Frankenstein. Yes. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd, he is the sexually deviant Professor Plum. He, Russell's already mentioned it, this, this is Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And... You know, I, I, I wanted to say, because uh, I'm trying to get Russell to watch some more Star Trek movies here. He's, uh, he's the Klingon Commander Krug from Star Trek Three, which was 1984, actually. That's my next movie, so I'll get there. Yes. I, I promise I'll get there. It's kind of hilarious. He's Christopher Lloyd in Klingon makeup, and it's great. Yeah, we've seen Christopher Lloyd this year in alien makeup. That's true. <laughs> uh, Michael McKean. He is the clumsy Mr. Green. This one's a little tougher. If you've seen Better Call Saul... He was Chuck McGill or uh, David St. Hubbins in This Is Spinal Tap. Martin Mall, he plays the opportunist and sometimes kind of buffoon Colonel Mustard. For me, he's always going to be Principal Kraft from Sabrina the Teenage Witch, uh, but he's also Leon Cap in Roseanne. Oh, he is, isn't he? Yeah. I, I, I knew the Sabrina one, but I didn't yep. make the Roseanne connection. Good way to bring that together. Yeah. He shows up everywhere. Leslie Ann Warren. She is the cynical Miss Scarlet. She was originally C- Cinderella in the 1965 live action. Uh, she plays Sophie Brimmer on Desperate Housewives for people like my wife. There's Colleen Camp. She is the busty maid Yvette, who was Mrs. Vanderhoff from Wayne's World. I recast her then. I feel worse about it here because I like her here. <laughs> There's Leaving. I am pronouncing his name correctly. It's Leaving. He is the blackmailer, Mr. Body. He's also in Flashdance as Johnny C and Fred in Fame. And finally for me, there is Bill Henderson, who is the investigating cop. And that, you might know him from City Slickers. He plays Ben Jessup. Oh yeah, good callbacks on all of those. It's interesting. One of the things that I can't believe that this movie didn't have more success on was the cast, because... While Christopher Lloyd was more known for Taxi at this point, not so much Back to the Future, it is still a pretty impressive group of cast members. I mean, all three of the main women, Aline Brennan, Madeline Kahn, Leslie Ann Warren, and also Michael McKean, all these people get Academy Award nominations. So it's got integrity in the cast here. Yeah, Yeah, it definitely has some weight. And most of the people are the people that they wanted early on in the process, or I can't say they were all the first choice, but they were all quickly there. But one of the ones that was sad for me was Carrie Fisher, uh, Princess Leia, was originally contracted to play Miss Scarlet, so it went more than just a tryout. It went more than a first choice. Unfortunately, she withdrew to undergo treatment for drugs and alcohol addiction. She was having trouble, and I gotta say... I really wish Carrie Fisher had been in this. This I really wanted to see her take this. So that would have been awesome. 
I, I totally agree with you, but Leslie Ann Warren is a real highlight of this cast as Miss Scarlet. Oh, yeah. She knocked it out of the park. My mind just goes to Carrie Fisher and Blues Brothers. Yeah. If you've seen Blues Brothers, she is this little, she's not a big lady. And so she's just this fireball and she's got like <laughs> this automatic gun. She's going like nuts off the deep end. And I I see this angry side of her, the rage that yeah, okay. I, that, that, that I, would, uh... I would like to see. I would like to see her once the unveiling comes out. So I also think that she could do the standoffishness without coming off as being as dislikable because I could see her being stern, but we still like her. And I don't know if that's just because she's always going to be Princess Leia for me and like I'm always going to so like Princess wholesome. Leia. Yeah, I, I, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I really wish we could have gotten Carrie Fisher in this one. Uh, she would have been a good bit younger. And Miss Scarlet, for whatever reason, I always have certain images of what's drawn on the cards with yeah, whatever yeah. The, the set that I grew up with. Miss Scarlet's a much younger woman than is portrayed in this. So, okay. And while she is a head of a prostitution ring and an information leaking espionage, uh, she is... Uh, in my mind, I would have cast younger, and Carrie Fisher would have helped Interesting. some of that as well. So Anyway, Jonathan Lynn's theory first choice to play the role of Wadsworth was Leonard Rossiter, but he died before the filming commenced, which is in keeping with the theme of the movie. And the second choice was Rowan Atkinson, who you will know as Mr. Bean. And I can't picture him even attempting this because he's such a physical actor, and it's not his words that make it worth it. And Wadsworth has to be so quick-worded. He does. Actually, this was this was one I immediately thought before I even read that he was under consideration. It's like, you know, if I had to replace Tim Curry with anyone, it would be Rowan Atkinson. I think it would make a lot of sense because the being that physical actor for Wadsworth, especially given all the hijinks at the very end of the movie, it's it just seems like it totally fits. Okay. I I I think Rowan is just at his best when he's not talking at all, though. So <laughs> he's so physically gifted. Like, and I, I mean this in a great way, like in a Harpo Marx kind of way. He just, yeah, he can crack yeah. me up without saying anything. So, and then the, another one, which there's no, the internet says so on this one. So I, there, there's no confirmation on this one. But John Cleese was also considered. And of these alternate ones, I'm, I love Tim Curry, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'll be gushing about him throughout this. But I have to admit. John Cleese also, at least I'd be interested to see what would happen in this role if John Cleese were in the role of Wadsworth, because I think that would be awesome. Yeah, refer to Rat Race when he's hosting some form of competition. It would be very similar, and he was fun as that slimy character. And uh, some more internet takes for what they said alternate castings could be Jennifer Jason Lee, who which we just did backdraft, so if you go no farther than one episode back to see her. Demi Moore and Madonna were all considered for the role of the French maid, Yvette. Colleen Camp got the part instead, and in retrospective, John Lynn, the director, said that he was impressed with her comedic skills, but at the end of the day, it was her um, uh, well-endowed figure that... Got her the role. Huge tracts of land. Huge yeah, tracts she, of land. <laughs> <laughs> she, she actually went to her audition in a French maid costume, so she one-upped everyone else. Well, apparently it was a very desired role. Yes. Uh, imagine that in Hollywood, you know? I mean, getting a role that way. Shocking, shocking. I know. In the 80s, no less. <laughs> Anyway, what do you think about this as, as an ensemble cast? Because this movie thrives off of chemistry. Well, and I think... Bringing up John Landis um, in terms of directing is important here because this movie very much reflects his stage background. You can 
tell very much in the camera work and with the way the acting is blocked out, it is absolutely a stage production. People are acting in a way which is not as immersive or in the moment as necessarily you would see in a movie which was being directed more seriously or realistically. It's very, very stylized, which is part of the charm of the movie. So the cast really acts as an ensemble where they all act and respond to things together and bounce off each other in a way which is very theatrical, which is, again, part of the charm. I have to admit, I've noticed this in Bill and Ted because Bill and Ted speak in unison a lot throughout the movie. (laughs) And this movie has great moments of that as well. I'm coming to find something I, I, I like many comedic tools but one of the comedic tools that I think that I like is a group of people all responding in unison at the, in the same way I, I like it when the takeaway is that resonant that everybody responds at the yeah. same time and in the exact same way because it's something that's so rare and the fact that like you said it takes you to this maybe stage like persona I think that was a good way that you put that it cracks me up so like when uh, you know like Wadsworth is like no and like everybody simultaneously is like no no <laughs> exactly it, it, it feels almost like you're watching people who are in the room with you acting instead of looking into you know through a window into another world or something which is which is part of why this movie is the well, way it is maybe that lends itself to the game as well you set up this box this this little thing is like a stage that you open up and it's it's there so i i, I i'm with you on that <laughs> chad as an ensemble what do you think about this group and their chemistry yeah i thought they were all great Um, The problem with ensemble casts like this is you don't really give enough time for everyone that you'd like to see. I would have liked a lot more Professor Plum from Christopher Lloyd. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really felt like Mrs. White was probably the least fleshed out. She had a couple good lines um, when they're talking about how many men have you had? And she's like, other people's husbands or just mine? Or, <laughs> but you get a little tiny bit of her character, but they don't do much with her. And there's just no time to work with really eight main people. You kind of wish that during some of those scenes where they break into pairs, that they talked a little bit more so that you could maybe dig into their characters a little bit more deeply. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about the film creation here a little bit. John Landis, who we've talked about on the Coming to America episode, uh, and speaking of Blues Brothers with Carrie Fisher just a second ago, he's he's one of the writers and director of Blues Brothers. Uh, oddly enough, he does American Werewolf in London as well, and the Thriller music video too. I mean, he's, as a director though, very, he's got Animal House under his belt, Three Amigos, Beverly Hills Cap 3. He's done a lot of stuff. His, his uh, career tailors off the end, but he He's the genesis of the writing of this movie, and he started this himself, and then later on brings in Jonathan Lynn to help see this through, perhaps out of his own constraints that he's not normally a mystery writer, because none of these other ones are that kind of movie. He's normally in the comedy spectrum. Right, right. uh, So, again, to take the game of Clue, though, and to build this fun, wacky mystery thing off, I got to give Landis a lot of credit for that. So Jonathan Lynn, as a director, Chad, what do you think about him? Yeah, this is a tough job. Like you've already described it, it's tough to coordinate all these scenes. There was a lot of intricacies with this. There were there were a lot of people on screen at the same time reacting to things, and every one of them's interesting when they're doing it. So hats off to Jonathan Lynn. It's his first movie, too, as a director. Right, 
right, as a, as a film director. I think one of the really interesting things is that the set that they were on very much feels like you're in a house the whole time, like a, a real house that you're immersed in, but only the ballroom itself was an actual location as opposed to a soundstage. And yet the movie feels like it has this continued rhythm despite this complicated plot that weaves in and out between a whole lot of different locations in the house, which as I was kind of summarizing this, it's, wow, there are so many moving pieces in this script. It's not just big twists and turns. It's every scene is some kind of a shocking thing happens or something. I, I had two thoughts about that. One, I was so disappointed this wasn't a real house because I thought this was this house was so perfectly set up for Clue. I, I was a little bit sad when... I feel like it could be a real house. I, I feel like it should be a real house. <laughs> well, Russell, now you have something to work on. I'm, I mean, I wouldn't look like this if I were doing it today, but anyway. <laughs> uh, if I were an architect in the uh, 1700s, maybe so. Imagine Clue in a, you know, a case study house. Oh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be sleek. And my other thought goes to what you're talking about with the stage thing now, and it, this just popped into my head now. Uh, being that these are all sets, actually seeing a real theatrical performance of this, some Broadway shows are just so amazing with the set work that they do to morph and to change and to right, take effect. Right. I'm wondering what a Broadway production level would do to actually accommodate this let's say a dozen rooms I did not count them don't write me and tell me I'm wrong I'm sure there's 10 or 11 or 13 or whatever but whatever number of rooms that is in the body mansion to see them turn rotate unfold slide drop in other things and to see the characters run on and off stage from side to side theater like uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum is definitely one of these things theaters where you got all these characters and they're running back and forth in different times and they're all crossing paths and to see it happen that frenetic nature on a stage really takes a life on its own and i'm starting to sit here and think man Maybe Clue belongs on Broadway. Well, there are theatrical productions of Clue as the movie version that have been made, and I'm sure that that is something you know really fun to be able to see all those scenes transpiring in different rooms at the same time, and who should I be watching with my eyes as, as Music? they're going through all this? Is it dialogue only? I'm pretty sure that it's dialogue only. I, so this is where this is where I want to kick it up another notch in Broadway. I want I want music too. That would be spectacular. So. Uh, Although it should be new music, because while I really enjoy the overture to this movie, I really don't remember anything else other than it being, you know, fitting comedy music. Okay, we'll put a... Shake, rattle, and roll? Yeah. That's true. This is true. But that's a cue. That's not a new piece of music written specifically for the movie. I'm with you, Russell. My immediate thought was this would be a really fun Broadway play, but at the same time, I think, how would they replicate Wadsworth running from room to room, talking about what happened in each room and running down the hallway at that frenetic pace? And that would be really tough from a set design. This would be perfect for Broadway. Imagine you've got a, a rotating set or something and you're running around and the set's rotating and you reveal different rooms at different times or maybe the rooms are you know lifted in or something and oh yeah that would be fun or maybe the sets the rooms are just rooms they don't have they're they're not big expanses you could have a lot of rooms facing the audience at any given time i don't think it would go diorama mode like that i think the unfolding thing that you're talking about is where broadway is now because like when i went to aladdin they start in the hallway they go out into the balcony they go into the, the they get on their carpet like and these layers are peeling away and it's really interesting and they are not saying like they're not trying to trick you and say you're only in a room and immerse you in the world they're 
saying like, yeah, this is a stage. This is how it works, and we're going to wow you with it. And yeah. uh, I, I think this movie would do that. Because the other thing is, the blocking in this movie is very much as if you're an audience watching something. The camera doesn't move too much. There are no. very few scenes where the camera is doing anything but sitting and watching a scene unfold, and the takes are fairly long. Yes. Like, there's a couple of creative perspectives, angle, like like where they're shooting from, but I would agree, this is not a cinematically rich movie, and I don't know if it's because comedies, uh, obviously they thrive on the situations and the characters often, but this, this is one of those ones where the cinematography was not necessarily for, at yeah. the forefront. Anyway, uh, Jonathan Lynn, as we mentioned, this is his first movie. He goes on to do one of my favorite movies, probably my top 10 comedies here my cousin Vinny from 92 so he he tops himself later I actually like Sergeant Bilko some people don't and I actually quite like the whole nine yards so he's actually kind of criticized for having a very spotty career with my, only my cousin Vinny being his shining moment but I, I'm going to go to bat for Jonathan Lynn a little more in this it was actually supposed to go to Landis but Landis was busy with other projects and you know, he trusted Lynn, who helped him write it, to do it himself. And so Lynn wasn't necessarily aiming to become a director, but he said, when presented with an opportunity to direct, you got to take it. And so it's interesting. It was viewed as a failure at the time, but I don't think as a director, he did a bad job. I think it all goes together well. Yeah. It doesn't overstay its wolf. And the other thing that I want to mention, on you're talking about the style and the substance and how, like the sets and stuff like that. It did do lighting. Well, I, I felt like the warm glow was comforting. Like, you know, something's amiss with, with what's going on. But at the same time, they didn't go full blown haunted house in this place either. Right. This is not a mystery where you're expecting someone hiding behind a corner. This is something where all of the perpetrators are out in the open and you're kind of wondering which of them it is. It's not something where where it makes sense for something to be hiding. Even when they are searching the house, it's not even, even vaguely implied that it's somebody else there. It's Agreed. just that Colonel Mustard is weirdly pushing people to to split up for no particular reason. Yeah. Chad, do you have any more information on that fourth ending? I kind of wanted to talk about how that was cut from the movie. I don't. So, again, there's not 100% clarity on this one because both Tim Curry and director uh, Jonathan Lynn have said that they didn't really remember what the fourth one was going to be. It didn't make it farther along, but a novelization comes along, and the basic lines of it are there in the novelization and so to some degree if you go by that there is allegedly a fourth ending in the script where Wadsworth committed the murders all uh, out of a twisted need for like the perfection in his life that he reveals that he poisoned everybody in the slow acting toxin in their drinks throughout the night he is later himself killed by dogs as he's trying to escape the house in a car it's a pretty grim finish everybody dies and it doesn't feel like it plays the tone of this movie. And if indeed, and I say if, that was the, the fourth ending, not only is it too much, but I don't think that's a good ending. No, that's super dark. Even though I did like the inclusion of poison because that was an original uh, weapon for Cluedo. It just wasn't included in Clue. So that was kind of cool. Indeed huh. it was. What do you think about the time setting, Nathan? We got 1954 any reason why this 1985 movie wants to be 1954? Well, I think it's critical to a lot of the themes that are in the movie. This is this is something where if you really want to analyze the film, you can. This is a film set in the McCarthyist, paranoid, oh my goodness, you're different from us kind of mindset where, you know, several of them have, are, are doing things where to a modern audience, it's kind of shrug your shoulders or even, well, that's not bad at all, but critical and kind of hilarious, the, some of the overreactions that 
like for example, Mrs. Mr. P- Green. Is, yeah, Mr. Mr. Green, Green is, is being the gay example is of like, that. That's the this that doesn't even play well today. It, it doesn't play well today at all. The, some of their reactions to it are kind of hilarious. Like Mrs. Peacock's, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so judgmental. Yeah, I guess you're right. And then I didn't think about it because the blackmail goes a lot farther than, you know, uh, Miss Peacock being a politician's wife. I mean, clearly both sides, I'm, I'm going to make everybody mad on this one, but whether you're Hillary Clinton and you're destroying computers or whether you're Donald Trump and potentially colluding with other countries, it seems like a lot higher stakes than what Mrs. Peacock doing people, here. People are holding people, you to these people, really high standards. Exactly. People would almost be disappointed if you weren't cheating in politics now. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, you're right. Some of these things, I mean, obviously Professor Plum would still be... Right, right. That, that would still be... Uh, 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 no. And killing several husbands does <laughs> still still holds the, the right. great shock of all. Yes, yes. While removing certain parts of them as three guys cross <laughs> their legs at the same time. Green's thing, though, wasn't really... He confessed before anyone else does that he's gay but if you see the photos it's actually not what his blackmailing secret was the photos of him are oh, really? him coming out of a government building with a briefcase so the information they had on him was different he threw it threw them off the trail by just throwing out information but yeah you're right the reactions were very very different i would did not pick up on that, that is, at all that is sharp observation but it makes total sense now that i think back on it i do feel like landis just had a bunch of j edgar hoover jokes they had to get off his chest so he's like hey i'm gonna make this in the 50s so i can make constant j edgar hoover fbi jokes <laughs> and so uh, we talked about when it is, but uh, there was actually a little clue for where this is because they mentioned Route 41, which guarantees that this being in New England, if you're looking at that part of Route 41, you're either in Connecticut or Massachusetts. And everybody's like, why did we have to drive all the way up here to this ugly house? Which it's, uh, they, kept, they, they kept making comments. You know that ugly house on top of the hill? Like, I was like, <laughs> I don't feel like it's as ugly. Like, it's, it's you know, like a rich person's house. Like, it's, it's a mansion. And, and I can't remember exactly where I was, but... I was driving home from an orchestra concert the other night from, uh, it was out at Butler County Community College. And on the way back, I saw a house on the top of a hill while driving through like a forested area. And it was like exactly what you would expect a house from Clue to be. You know, if, if, if only there was some lightning going on, it would have been exactly that shot and it was uh it was pretty cool well going back to the house the the exterior at least was a real house it was it was called the max bush house and it was in southern pasadena california but if you're excited to go see the house someday you're at luck it was destroyed by a fire in 2005 so not only was all the interior sets minus the ballroom the uh the, the ballroom as well as the driveway exterior shots are uh, all gone as well because it's it's all burned up no can't can't go can't go there and the, the exterior, which was a really fun stylized shot, because this movie's not stylized inside that much, that they, they did a nice job of matte painting that to make the house look larger and more ominous and foreboding, like uh, exactly. setting the mood, the mood in the beginning. I, I would say while the credits are rolling in the beginning, uh, definitely was one of the best moments for the style. Why hasn't your car started? It's frightened. Yeah. Well, just the uh, staccato notes from the string section as we look on this house and the eerie synthesizer, it was a very ominous tone. So that stood out to me, too. I really enjoyed it. The architectural detail that I want to point out is the parquet floor in the hallway, in a way, is reminiscent of the gridded board game that you see in the game. So small detail. 
Small detail. Maybe I'm stretching it a little bit. Maybe it's just a parquet floor anyway, but parquet floor is where the wood changes direction and creates perfect squares like a checkerboard or whatever, hey, or like, like a clue grid. That is brilliant integration where you notice it and it's interesting, but it doesn't do yeah. anything negative to the plot. Exactly. I don't think the viewers came out of there and go like, oh, I noticed the parquet floor. But on the other hand, I promise you the set designer did. Um, yes, the set designer, oh, yeah. guarantee, had thought that through. And I appreciate that level I wouldn't be surprised if some of the other rooms also had flooring decisions which were which, which were representative of that. But that's really the only room that we really get a good look at the floor itself. And maybe it's because Clue was one of my favorite board games even before I got to this movie. But in a way, this movie gratified so many of my visions for what the house would be like. I imagined a billiard room very similar to this. And I imagined a study very similar to this. It might not be exactly that. But from walking in other old mansions and stuff like that, taking tours, I guess this is why I grew up to be an architect. But yeah, my parents would drag me to these like mansion tours and stuff like that sometimes. And yeah, this is a lot like what I imagined. The conservatory being bleak and scary and oppressive was the only one that made me go like, oh, this is not what I want for my conservatory. So other than the ballroom, which doesn't get used, which that's one of my, I'm not going to make this my change one thing, but use something in the ballroom and use a bigger ballroom. Like it should be more grand. You might have to go to another house, but give me, give me something big that happens in the ballroom. Use that. Use use a big space. Mister Body should have a big ballroom. You mentioned the floors, but I do think that was a deliberate design because each secret passageway that they use during the movie is actually connecting a room from one room to another that's consistent with a board game. So they were pretty meticulous with this when they really didn't have to. I'm glad they did that. Now, one thing they, they weren't as meticulous on and threw us a number of curveballs was in the wardrobe. Chad, do you want to talk about what the what our main characters are wearing? Yeah, that's very frustrating to me. Almost all the characters, I mean, they're dressed very nicely, but it's nothing like the board game. So Mrs. White is wearing black. Mrs. Peacock, she has peacock feathers in her hair or some form of plumage, probably not peacock feathers, uh, but she doesn't have a colorful blue outfit. Colonel Mustard isn't wearing yellow. He's wearing kind of a brownish suit. You know, it's just not consistent with how the board game was. I wanted Professor Plum in a purple jacket. I wanted Mr. Green and something green. His was like a burgundy-ish color. I thought it was blue, but yeah, with a red tie. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this was a this was a big complaint for me. Yeah. I will say, in the context of a board game, you really don't have anything but the way that people are dressed to give you people's personalities and things. So the board game kind of has to show it as that's the color. But the movie was able to be a little bit more artistic with some people's personalities and their named color went together. So Miss Scarlet really doesn't need to be wearing a uh, scarlet piece of clothing in order to be recognized for her name. Yeah. Yeah, but she runs like this prostitution ring. Like, wouldn't she, like, a alluring red dress, which is very striking, when, red lips and red dress, like, that just seems like it's, that's that's Miss Scarlet. I don't know. I, I, feel like there's, I feel like there's a degree of obvious on the nose that you got to steer into this. Like, you got you to embrace, you could, you gotta you embrace the board game. Their car, their cars actually match the color of their board piece, though. I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay, everybody's okay. everybody's car is their color. Of- and I, and I will say, some of them, there there's a tendency to have they their overall outfits may not match, but they might have some kind of accent going on. So Miss Mrs. White, for example, has that. 
coat, which when she takes it off is white on the inside. And Colonel Mustard's tie has hints of yellow in it in the stripes and things like that. Yeah. Again, I, I think that for me, I'm with Chad on this one. I'm just, I was just more frustrated. I think the glasses for Mrs. Peacock was my favorite thing because they're kind of cat's eye, but at the same time that they have a feathery detail on them. Yeah. yeah. I did like that. They fit her. They're hilarious. Uh, yeah, they're over the top. And I, I think this is, again, steer into all of this. And the uh, obviously, Wadsworth and Yvette are perfect. Although... That was a that was a noticeably short maid's dress, <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Body is not not that he's really portrayed in the board game at all. But <laughs> actually, there's a character that I want to change. I didn't like his whole attitude, especially once you find out later about who he is or what the circumstances of him being there. I didn't like his rough personality. I thought being more nervous, maybe evasive and slimy, would be good. But I did not care for this kind of rough tough like maybe yeah I I, I didn't I do think that part is tricky because the way that it probably should have gone down is that he should have come in Wadsworth invited him in and told him to act a certain way without really telling him why and he acts that way for a little while until he realizes what Wadsworth is tricking everybody else into thinking about him and then he should have had a different more worried reaction when he realizes that Wadsworth is having them all turn on him in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty forgivable because he's not in it for long. So, I mean, right. in a way, my beef with it is obviously corrected. And, of course, only one of the endings makes what his behavior is not make sense. Also true. Uh, Nathan, you are a musician yourself. You are a French horn player. Chad, as well as a French horn player. And so I want to get your guys' perspective on this one. What do you think about the music Uh, Not only the Shaboom as well as Shake, Rattle, Roll and Mm -hmm. Shaboom, but more so the John Morris score. So the overture is great. It sets up this dark, foreboding tone that then gradually transforms itself into realizing what the movie actually is after all the introductions start start coming in. And the rest of the movie, it, for the most part, just keeps this wonderful, not terribly memorable, but one it fits the tone of what's going on exactly, and it accents the scenes in the right ways, and I think, I think it's a good score. Yeah, Chad, what's your take on the music of Flu? Yeah, I definitely agree that Overture was a big standout moment for me. They do a good job of having this kind of fun, light score whenever Wadsworth is running from room to room doing the reenactments, so that was good. Uh, it was kind of nice having the 50s scores. Uh, introducing Yvette and having her dance to Shake, Rattle, and Roll was a little bit heavy-handed. Like, we get it, and if we didn't get it, we had every character <laughs> except for Mr. Body stare at her chest. I was kind of proud of Mr. Body when he... Mr. Green. Well, Mr. Body didn't either, and I was like, hey, he didn't check out her chest. Yay. And then he lifts up her skirt, and I'm like, oh. Well, he works with her all the time. Yeah, so he, he just yeah, has a different yeah. he favorite. He was staring at other but, parts uh, of her. Yeah, I was proud of him for... Five seconds. But yeah, the life is a dream or... Shaboom, yeah, by the crew cuts. Those were fun and they added to it. But for the most part, I didn't notice the music that much. I did notice the music a lot. And maybe it's because I've seen this a lot of times. Maybe I've seen this over 10 times easily. So maybe with repeated viewings, it starts to emerge a little bit more. I'm with Nathan. Love the beginning. You know it's fun. It's not really dark and serious, but there's it's dark and fun at the same time, and that's that's a world that I like to live in for sure. And they 
the hijinks and calamity in the music itself. Yeah, you, yeah. It's, it's, it, it adds to the pace, and I can't imagine Tim Curry running around without this score playing. So, And the physical nature, it is such a compliment. Again, I'm sitting there grinning ear to ear on this. Again, I'm not necessarily belly laughing. I'm just having a lot of fun, and the music is a big, big character and a big part of why this all comes together. And... So if anybody else who makes a video game or board game movie wants to understand what Clue does well, they got the spirit of the game and they carried it down from the scenery, the sets, the idea of what is going on. They actually brought some of the spirit of the game into the story and then obviously they reinforced it with every detail. And that's why most video game or board game movies suck and this one doesn't. So, Chad, look for this. Professor Plum says he works for the World Health Organization, or WHO, and it's part of the United Nations Organization. So when you put them all together, it's he works for you-know-who. And uh, I'm going to go with the singing telegram girl is played by Jane Weedlin, best known for the rhythm guitarist of the Go-Go's. Yep. And if you're not sure who the Go-Go's are, it's an 80s band most known for We Got the Beat. So, yep, they got an actual musician to do the musical part there. Yeah, it was fun. Big role. Big role. So... It's that time of the podcast. It's my favorite time of the podcast. Ready to hand out some awards. Nathan. Well, I think that we're all going to have the same person on this list, but, uh, you know, maybe I'll be surprised. But MVP, Tim Curry. My goodness. It's a good pick. Yep. Chad. Yeah. Uh, His his grin, man. It just gets me every time. It's infectious. (laughs) His energy's off the chart. He just fills this entire movie with whimsy. What just stands out to me is just how he says simple things. Like when he's slapping Mr. Green around and Mr. Green goes, will you stop that? And he just goes, no. (laughs) And does it again. No. Or or he tells the cop, what do you mean, murder? (laughs) (laughs) What what do you do? I buttle, sir. (laughs) I do think the, the mean reviews could have been warranted if you didn't have Tim Curry. All the other cast I actually really like, and I'm pretty happy with everybody on this cast, but if you didn't have Tim Curry, this thing doesn't come together, and for that reason, he's the MVP. Yeah. Most of the other cast deliver their lines in a way which would imply that this is a much more serious movie than it is. Yeah, I agree. And so, uh, best supporting actor, Nathan. I mentioned this earlier, but Leslie Ann Warren as Miss Scarlet is perfect for the role and chews all the scenery and it's hilarious. Okay. Uh, Chad, best supporting actor. I'm right there with Nathan. We're hand in hand here. Leslie Ann Warren. I just like how she kind of sits back and delights in everyone's misery. She has great quips. She has lines like life after death is as improbable as sex after marriage. And she's just, she's believable as the murderer. So she makes the first ending work. I'm going to go with uh, Path Less Traveled on this one. I'm going to go Eileen Brennan as Mrs. Peacock on this one. Okay. I did like her over the top nature like once she's been poisoned i liked her like <laughs> hypocritical ghastly like oh what's wrong with you like the, the the disapproval when she herself has skeletons in her own closet this was a big character and i think she took i think she took it bigger than anybody else and obviously not everybody can go so exaggerated but she did she's first built she's actually built over tim curry i think that might be partially alphabetical doing that but nevertheless 
I think she's great in this, and I, I, I did like her in this. So while the B ending, as we talked about it, was not good, it wasn't her fault, I think that she was my favorite piece of the supporting cast. And that's hard to do because I love Christopher Lloyd. I just didn't think he got much time to shine, as Chad had mentioned earlier. And M- Madeline Kahn was awesome in this, but I also felt like I wanted her to get a little more time. She takes a slap like a champ, so those scenes were great. <laughs> <laughs> I had to stop her screaming. <laughs> and then when Tim Curry just slaps her just to reenact it. <laughs> oh, hidden gem. Uh, Nathan. I'm going to have to go with Bill Henderson here, the cop who doesn't have a whole lot of screen time, but he sells the heck out of all those lines where he kind of messes with them by implying something bad is going on. And then at the end, you know, it's a free country. Oh, that's great. He's great. I wish he had lived a little bit longer. He's really good. Uh, Chad. Yeah, that's a great pick. Uh, Russell, you already took mine as far as the look for this, but uh, Jane Wideland, the telegram girl, as you've stated, she's the rhythm guitar player for the go-go so she's my hidden gem she actually did a great job singing so that was fun i'm i was gonna pick what chad picked but uh i am glad that you also picked uh the hidden gem for the policeman there nathan because you covered my grounds so chad if you had to recast one person in the 1985 clue who would it be i think i'm gonna go after lee ving and mr body i'm gonna choose dean kane played superman but he's played some villains later on and i think he can pull off both the the nicer and less nice guy and not come off as just purely harsh and unreasonable that's a great choice and i'm right there with you unfortunately I, my recast, I now realize, wasn't famous yet in 1985, so small oversight in my part, but I think John Lovitz would be awesome as Mr. Body. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, I, I would like to see him try and get out of there, and not in such an aggressive tone, but more like, what's the meaning of this? And then like, it's like, these are the people you're blackmailing. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would like to see him passively try and like constantly keep trying to leave and then being pushed to get back in the chair. And I, I think there's a dynamic there that he could play a bigger role in the part while he's alive. And yeah, go ahead and kill him. I just realized, though, he doesn't make it on Saturday Night Live until later in the 80s, so <laughs> slight oversight. That's my pick, though. So, Well, what occurs to me, actually, is that Colonel Mustard maybe could have used a little bit more uh, oomph to his part, and wouldn't it have been fun to do a Sean Connery Colonel Mustard just oh, hamming it up? Awesome. Oh, that would be <laughs> great. Oh, see, I love Martin Mull, so I did like, I'm going to fight for him. I did like him, but I mean, just putting Sean Connery in this movie does <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> May he have a yellow kilt, like a mustard and a yellow kilt. I, 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 in a hat, like one of those like Scottish hats. Like, monocle, too. Like, really steer into it. Best uh, shot of the movie, Nathan. As we talked, not necessarily the most cinematically rich movie, but what's your best shot? There is this wonderful comic punchline that the shot just absolutely sells when they're all split up and Mrs. White and Wadsworth are looking around some rooms and everyone's been discovering secret passageways for a little while and finally Mr. Wadsworth finds this doorknob and says, another door, turns it, and there's this hilariously, oddly beautiful shot of a spotlight, probably, shining through water of a shower, hitting Wadsworth in the face. And it's just wonderful. (laughs) Great pick, and certainly a memorable scene. Like, when you look up the movie, that scene comes up 
frequently. Oh yeah, and it helps that he's wet later as he's doing his frenetic <laughs> yeah. dash around the movie. Because I think I think the payoff of him being wet yeah. isn't just the shower turning on him. I think it's I think it's the fact that he's like soaking wet the rest of the movie. Chad, best shot. The scene with Mr. Green and Yvette trying to go up this really tight stairway, and they're just clumsily kind of uh, Emperor's New Groove style. Uh, side to side, back to back, inching their way up. It was probably a really tight shot in the first place, and it's framed to be even more awkward. So they linger on that just to let the comedy sink in. I'm with you. That was mine 100% because I felt like this was, again, an inspired perspective, which is this movie's best cinematic moments are inspired perspectives. Like when the dead bodies in the study, for instance, someone kind of like, you have a really low angle and like the uh, policeman comes in. Or sorry, the, the, the other people come in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this one was my favorite as well. Good lighting, good elongated perspective. And, you know, you have this really pretty woman, uh, you know, like Mr. Green and like they're being awkward with each other and they're also scared. And I just, this was a good scene. Love that you picked that, Chad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second that. So best scene of the movie, I think, it, I think there could be a lot of alignment on this one, but uh, Nathan. I'm just going to go for the third ending. Just the conclusion of that scene where everybody is, everyone has just been amazed for like three minutes straight of how many more things can possibly have happened and all the all the turnabouts. It just great. I love when they stitch it together too, by the way, the white text and the black screen with the music playing. Yes. It adds to that stage-like persona that you're talking about and it just sets it up so well. I really like that. Simple simple stitching tactic. I don't like the freeze frames though. Those those like like the like freeze shots. That, those are awful. That is an effect which has never worked in any movie. I did not like in it. In my opinion. The Colonel Mustard Chandelier like freezing or like the people standing out in front of the driveway and freezing. <laughs> no thank you to that. So this is supposed to be best shot. I, I, I'm going down the rabbit hole of worst shots, but best scene, chat. I think I'm going to say the less obvious one and let you have that. But uh, I really enjoyed when Wadsworth is talking to the policeman and he's going through the rooms and he's like, it's not all that shocking. (laughs) (laughs) These folks are just having a good time. There's nothing illegal about any of this. And Wadsworth, are you sure? (laughs) Of course, this is America. (laughs) And just, you know, it it made me laugh. It made me really just laugh out loud. Everything that was going on, they're dancing with dead bodies, they're a weekend at Bernie's, uh, fake. Yeah, it's like, bodies. this man is drunk. It's like, I'll drive him home. Dead right. Yeah. There was just so much crammed into that scene, and it was, it was great being in on the audience side and knowing what we knew versus what the policeman knew, and just the irony that's laid on really thick here. Great choice. And I'm going to second Nathan and just go the resolutions. And I'm going to count them all as the same scene in three different versions of themselves. It was creative. It, Other than Wayne's World, <laughs> there, there's not many movies that have alternate endings. And I'm a sucker for that. I just love it. I, I think there's a lot of fun to be played with that. It's breaking the fourth wall almost and saying, like, we know we're a movie. This is I'm talking to the audience directly and saying this is what could have happened, but this is what might have happened. This is what did happen. And it's all packaged so, so well. So... Best quote, Nathan. My favorite is when Wadsworth says, I'm sorry, Professor Plum, you were once a professor of psychiatry specializing in helping paranoid and homicidal lunatics suffering from delusions of grandeur. And Plum says, yes, but now I work for the United Nations. 
and Wadsworth just comes back with, so your work has not changed. <laughs> <laughs> good one, good one. And Chad, what is your best quote? When talking about his Wadsworth's wife having socialist friends, he just goes, well... We all make mistakes <laughs> Talk, talking about uh, things that may not hold up in 2019. Oh, that's where Mrs. Peacock has her, oh my God, one <laughs> in response to that. That's right. And Chad, you kind of took my best quote, which was the interchange between, uh, you know, the cop and Wadsworth, you know, with the, I can explain everything. You don't have to. It's, this is, are you, is there anything going wrong here? This is America. That definitely was mine. And I'm uh, not going to read through that whole thing again because you pretty much encapsulated it but my second one and i definitely had another one running up behind it was colonel mustard what they were asking is is everything all right in there and then colonel mustard says yep two corpses everything's fine (laughs) yeah i love the matter of fact like murder has become normalized to him at that point he's just like yeah this is this is what's happening tonight i mean that's one of the great things that by the end of the movie there's that there's the one scene just before the ending start up that they're all just walking around in a daze like up oh, yep there's another body and there's another body so i never do this but let's think about it does this movie want to be remade today maybe i'd give it a go yeah why not it was enjoyable i think there's more fun to be had actually i i, I would not have the reverence to not touch it because we have this movie it's great but you could do something different with it too this movie as we have noticed with the many alternate endings and the other possibilities which could have been brought up as well i think it really deserves to have a remake and could benefit I hope it would be profitable this time. <laughs> it's already got a built-in fan base because yeah. I'm, I'm a fan. I would go. So, um, so if you were making this today, let's take a little quick one. Uh, you, we'll just go around one person at a time and instead of going down to the cast. Let's, let's talk about who might you put in the roles if you were making this movie today. Let's start off with Wadsworth. Nathan, why don't you go first? So for Wadsworth, and this might be an odd pick because he's maybe on the older side of what you would imagine this to be, but I think Peter Capaldi would be hilarious in this role in many of the ways that he acts in Doctor Who when he, while he's the 12th Doctor, where he's this kind of old, serious-seeming guy, but has this almost childlike energy to him. Really? That's the Doctor Who you want to put in this? Exactly. You don't want to put Matt Smith in this? I debated. I debated Matt Smith. I debated David Tennant. But I think... Both of those <laughs> seem like better picks. <laughs> but... I'm just just imagine the Peter Capaldi sort of crazy eyebrows, serious delivery of these lines, which are just actually absolutely off the wall insane. Okay. I think that's the person that I want because that's the thing. You could have someone like Matt Smith or David Tennant who just exude weirdness all the time versus someone like Peter Capaldi who is acting in a way that is totally opposite of the way that he kind of comes across in looking. So that's that's. I want Peter Capaldi as Wadsworth. Chad, Wadsworth. I'm tempted to say it's still got to be Tim Curry. But uh, if I have to do it, yeah, David Tennant came to my mind. <laughs> I would want David Tennant to do it. It's wow. a good night for Doctor Who. I feel like I should pick Matt Smith to do the trifecta <laughs> of Doctor Who's. And I'm, I'm more in your camp, okay. David Tennant. But I'm going to go with a different British guy. I'm going to go with Martin Freeman. That would that would work great. Right. His high-paced, frenetic, nervous energy, I think, would really do well with this. And I also know that he could do the refined part too, like in the beginning. So I could see the unfolding there. So Mr. Green. So I've got Ryan Reynolds for Mr. Green. Oh, I like your pick better than my pick. That's really good. That's that's really good. I debated where to put him because is... 
as as he's been involved with doing the the possible actual remake of this, I was debating where to put him, and I think he's supposed to be Wadsworth in that remake. But I like him as Mr. Green. Yeah, he and the Deadpool writers were going to do this, but unfortunately it fell apart. Oh, so no. I, I, I say I say get it on Kickstarter, people, and make Ryan Reynolds make this movie. So Chad. Mr. Green. Going with Nathan Fillion, I feel like he can do both. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, that's another can, good choice. Yeah, that is he can such do a good clumsy, choice. and then he can do that confident air that Mr. Green puts on at the end. You guys are making excellent selections here. I'm going to go with Paul Rudd. Okay. I had that in there for a little while, actually. He's He would be a great choice. I, I can see him being perturbed in particular. Like, I didn't do it. Like, like I can see him like tapping into his Ant-Man as he's coming a little undone through that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, uh, Professor Plum. For Plum, I've got Jeff Goldblum. Ooh, I, I always like Jeff Goldblum. I can't think of a movie that doesn't need Jeff Goldblum. I, exactly. <laughs> what can I say? I just think that Professor Plum is this person who is bumbling, but ideally it would be bumbling in the Jeff Goldblum where, way, be, where he just kind of like does things. He'd be pervy in like a toned down way. Yeah. Like, like, like yeah. a little bit creepy, but funny, like still endearing, but like definitely a creep. I get it. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Chad, who's your Professor Plum? Matt. Damon. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Ooh, that's an interesting yeah. and very scary one. I, 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 I'm, okay. I'm okay with that. I, I can I can just kind of see him being deviant in the corner. Like I, I, I like Damon, but I might put him in the mustard roll, though. Yeah, yeah, he would he would be a good mustard. But uh, my Professor Plum's going to go to Bill Hader. Okay. Okay. He's great in everything now. Yeah, so I, I would go with him on that. I, I I think his facial expressions would do well with the like, ooh, hum, hum, like. like <laughs> I just I, I could see him tapping into the physical humor that I, I again Lloyd was awesome I wish he had got more time so Colonel Mustard as we were mentioning so this one I'm going to uh, go with Cass Anvar who is the pilot Alex from The Expanse and he is an ex-military officer who has some regrets from the past, but is still just absolutely hilarious. And I think that he could really pull off the Colonel Mustard seriousness in a very different way. I think he would be a completely different Colonel Mustard from what we have in the movie, but I think it would be great. Okay. And Chad, who's your Colonel Mustard, if not Matt Damon? He's already been in one board game remake, but I'm going with Kevin Hart. Oh, really? Okay. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like he could bring some some of his special brand of comedy to Colonel Mustard. I, I, he, he, he would be even more along the line of... He could be uh, a good Wadsworth, too. He, he could be a good Wadsworth. Yeah. He, he was definitely as... Yeah. On, on my he's list. A, he's that. a powerhouse. Yeah. And by the way, he just got in a big car wreck. I hope he's okay. Ooh. Yeah, he's doing better now. He had surgery and he's healing up. Good. Uh, my Colonel Mustard, I'm going to go with Bruce Willis. I want, I want this tough guy, but who, who can also handle being goofy. <laughs> and uh, Miss Scarlet. Let's go to the ladies now. Miss Scarlet, Nathan. All right. Michelle Gomez, another Doctor Who actress. She's Missy and has that wonderful judging everybody silently with all kinds of attitude around her kind of action as she's as she's going along. Okay, okay. And Chad, who are you going to go with your Miss Scarlet? Terry Hatcher. I feel like she can kind of exude this older, been there, done that dry witticisms that uh, Miss Scarlet had. Oh, okay. I like her, and I wasn't going to go 
as old for this role because I envisioned a younger Miss Scarlet, and I think the makers of this did too when they had Carrie Fisher slated originally as well. And so, again, I'm stuck on the fact that the cards always depict Miss Scarlet as the young woman. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the youngest of the bunch, always. And so, I'm going to go with Emma Stone here. Okay. I think Okay. I think she's versatile. She can handle anything. And she's about to play Cruella DeVille, so she's certainly, <laughs> so she's, she's yes, certainly capable yes. of playing a villain herself. And she's very beautiful as well. And I think I'd like to see Emma Stone out there in a red dress with the red gloves on and, you know, with the rope. And and she did the Scarlet Letter movie. Good point. Uh, Easy A. Oh, that, yeah, that's that's definitely a good, like, metal line to put in there. So good good call on that. Mrs. Peacock. For Mrs. Peacock, I've got Shoray Agdashalu, who is Abbasarla from The Expanse. Also, she's a Commodore Paris from Star Trek Beyond. But... You're really hitting our sci-fi crowd. Nathan, I'm really, <laughs> specifically the Expanse crowd, which, uh, early plug, watch the Expanse. Um, she has this wonderful aspect of coming across as really serious, but anytime that she's in a role where she's being asked to do something that's not necessarily the nicest, it's hilarious and absolutely wonderful coming from her. So that would be my pick. Okay, great one. And Chad, who's your Miss Peacock? Yvette Nicole Brown. I I like her personally as Shirley from Community, but she's this. Uh, she plays an older, sassy black woman, and she was in the Avengers. She was in Endgame as well. I think she would bring a lot of personality to Miss Peacock, and I think she'd be a lot of fun. Nice. I like that one. For Mrs. Peacock, I'm gonna go with Julia Louis Dreyfus. So you would know her from being Elaine on Seinfeld. Ooh, um, okay. I think uh, she she's got far more under her belt than just being Elaine, though. She's actually quite versatile, and I think she can do disapproving <laughs> quite well. And uh, I'd, I'd like to see her do this one. So Mrs. White, Nathan. Michelle Yeoh of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. action side heritage, uh, who I think would be hilarious as she's someone you could totally believe as having disposed of all of her previous husbands. Okay, nefarious. I like it. And Chad, who is your Mrs. White? Megan Fox. I think they were shooting for someone that was just oh, exuding really sex appeal. That's, and that's a good that's one. really good. We've reached the point in time where that can't be Angelina Jolie anymore. So let's uh, give this mantle to Megan Fox. Oh, that's a really good pick. I, I went I went with a very different direction. I wanted her to be dark and quirky and uh, play off the murder, some like the mysterious side. Maybe still, still attractive in her own right, but uh, I'm going to go with Carrie Brownstein. Uh, you would definitely know her from the band Sleater Kenny, but more so from Portlandia. So, and uh, okay. I had considered though Helena or Helena Bonham Carter though as well. Mm. So either one of those would make me very happy on that. So, and one more. Do you have a Yvette? I've got a Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, it's got to be Scarlett Johansson. That's that's a great choice. I put Kate Upton in that role. She's done goofy comedy before with uh, the other woman, and I could see her doing this. And she certainly has the build to do it. But before we continue, I do have one more piece in here that I think is absolutely critical. This movie has to be directed by Wes Anderson. Oh, you made Chad a real sad man. Yes, yes you did. <laughs> it, it would be absolutely hilarious and fit the tone of staged, but absolutely precisely articulated and wonderful. I would I would really want this to be a Wes Anderson movie. I think you would have a board game, like diorama, like the, the camera would zoom up and go from one room into the other. Exactly. But... It would be this incredibly put, I, I... <laughs> carefully put together thing. Man, I don't know who I would trust to do this. I hadn't considered that. I won't be prepared to answer that question. <laughs> good, good, good to add on though. Um, Nathan, is there anything you want to plug before we rate this? Uh, 
again, as always, watch The Expanse. He loves that show. It's on Amazon now. And uh, so, on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, Nathan, what would you rate Clue from 1985? I think this is a solid four stars. That's a great choice. And Chad, how about you? What's your rating? I'm giving it five. Wow. wow. Pulling it out. I noticed this movie has a lot of wordplay and quips and little witty lines. That's something I'm detecting I'm, as I've gotten to know your tastes through comedy more. That's something that's always a, a pleaser for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love just the witty banter. I was in a lot of plays growing up that relied on just the smartness of the dialogue. I wasn't digging the first part of the movie where they were all smelling dog poop on shoes. I was like, oh, this is getting it to be a tired joke. And then it it kind of got smarter or funnier and a lot more clever. Yeah. Are you trying to make me look ridiculous? You don't need to for me. Exactly. Uh, for me, I'm going to hit the right middle road for you guys. As time goes on, I love this movie more and more. And I'm at a 4.5, but I have to admit, I just grin like an idiot from ear to ear watching this movie. It puts me in a great mood. So it does probably put me in the five frame of reference. I've watched it a lot of times. And so from rewatchability, it's 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 pushing five. It's a it's a five plus for rewatchability. So, it's wonderful to rewatch. Yeah, so I'm I'm at four point five, but it's a solid four point five if that's such a thing. Chad, uh, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely, let's do it. We've been neglecting the seventies, and we're gonna do we're gonna keep with the comedy spectrum. We're gonna go back to the seventies here. We got a remake uh, that happens later, but this is the original Fun with Dick and Jane from nineteen seventy seven. When an upwardly mobile couple finds themselves unemployed and in debt, they turn to an armed robbery and desperation. Option two: The Twelve Chairs from nineteen seventy. In 1920 Soviet Russia, a fallen aristocrat, a priest, and a con artist search for a treasure hidden in the jewels inside one of the 12 dining chairs lost during the revolution. Option three, Out of Towners from 1970. An Ohio sales executive accepts a higher position within the company and travels to New York City with his wife for his job interview, but things go wrong from the start. All of these sound intriguing, but The Twelve Chairs has uh, is a Mel Brooks movie, so I'm going to have to vote for that one. I like it. And Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. And thank you all for listening as well. Remember all the Lord's Lacey Nights, the Retro Movie Roundtable. We want to invite you to reach out from us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe and rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Those iTunes reviews help others find the show. It's the number one thing you can do to help the show. So just take 30 seconds of your time to give it a five-star rating and write a little one-sentence review. That helps us so much. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? Communism was just a red herring. For he's a jolly good fellow.